thank you sir uh, thank you uh, for organizing this uh, mei speaks on uh, this very interesting book which has recently come uh, and we have uh, a very welcome to everyone in the audience uh, as sir mentioned we have today dr guy burton with us uh, who is uh, going to introduce his book china and the middle east conflicts uh, dr guy burton is a adjunct professor at wesselis college brussels in belgium and a visiting uh, fellow for the uh, project on sectarianism proxies and desectarianization at lancaster university he has previously held teaching positions in dubai in malaysia in the kurdish region of iraq and also in the palestinian territories and uh, he is also the author of a book rising powers and the arab israeli conflict since 1947 that had come out in nine, uh, in 2018 and this is his uh, second book uh, i met uh, virtually uh, you know dr guy burton couple of months back when we were part of a panel in one of the conferences organized by this sectarianism project at the sepad and he was speaking on rising power in the middle east and i was speaking on india and the middle east and this is uh, again a virtual meeting the second meeting and i was quite fascinated by the points he you know raised on that in during that conference uh, uh, the other day and uh, and again uh, i let me confess i haven't really read the book i haven't got got hold of the book i was trying to figure out as to what exactly the book is all about and i got hold of the book a couple of days back uh, online you know uh, version on the google and uh, read the introduction of the book and and let me actually you know say <laughs> i am quite hooked to the idea some of the ideas which you have discussed uh, in the book guy and it's very interesting uh, you know and, and i really intend to now get hold of a copy and read the book uh, also one of the most amazing things uh, which i which which uh, you know i found in the book while reading the introduction is the i mean even though it's a it's a book focused on the conflicts china and middle east conflicts but the kind of expanse the vast expanse you have covered in terms of the from arab israeli conflict and how china responded to it in the beginning and then to the current situation the rise of isis and how the mayhem it had created in the middle east so i think this is this is a very vast and and i'm saying this with my own experiences of uh, you know whatever little experience of writing i have you know most of the time when when you take a subject and try and cover all aspects of it i most of the time find myself all at sea so <laughs> you know this is something uh, quite amazing in terms of uh, what you have done and i really and everyone in the audience really look forward to uh, your uh, presentation on the book and then we'll have uh, certainly have a lot of questions expect a lot of questions especially given the current situation in china and the debate on china within india uh, uh, so perhaps you know uh, you should also expect some questions on that uh, over to you well thank you very much uh, you know mudassar and also professor kumaraswamy for you know having me and allowing me to 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 join with you guys today and to talk about the 
the book. I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. And, and I mean, I, re I also recognize that unfortunately being a Rootledge publication, it does, it does, it's being a hardback, it's not necessarily conducive for, you know, individual, uh, you know, purchases, you know, being as expensive as it is. Um, so, I mean, if you can persuade your institution to, you know, to get hold of a copy, I'd really appreciate it. Um, while you're waiting for that, of course, I could also flag up as well that, you know, there are a couple, I've, I've written a few pieces which sort of summarize the essence of the book as well, which you can find, you know, online. Um, you know, I've written a, a, a couple of short pieces, both through the Middle East Eye, as well as, you know, a commentary for the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, in, in London. Um, and also, uh, earlier this month, I wrote a piece uh, for the War on the Rocks uh, website, which summarizes some of the points in it and then tries to go a little bit further. Because there's something I think that's interesting that's coming out of the you know, current, current debate and discussion, you know, amongst Chinese scholars who focus on the Middle East about, you know, what is China's role, you know, moving forward in conflict? Because a lot of what I talk about in the book, you know, takes us up to the present. But I think there is actually a discussion going on, which sort of says that will take the, the, the conversation further. And it wasn't it's only touched upon in the book. Um, one other thing, just quickly, Mudasa, how, how many minutes do you want me to speak? Because I don't want to be sort of, you know, being too, too long, you, you know. You, you can speak. your mic is off. Yes, uh, you can speak for around 20 to 25 minutes, then we can Fine. have a, yeah. you know, discussion for around 30, 35 minutes. Fine. Okay, no problem. So I should have made, I should have flagged that up earlier. But yes, I mean, it should only take me about 15 to 20 minutes to just summarize very briefly. I mean, just give you sort of a sense of why I wrote this book. Um, you know, I think there's obviously there's been a lot, a lot of interest, uh, you know, in China and the Middle East over the last, you know, decade or so. Uh, and a lot of that has been stimulated, obviously, by sort of the emergence of and the, and the launch of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but one thing that I found somewhat frustrating is that, you know, the focus on Belt and Road, you know, a lot of the, the analysis, or at least in the early stages, when I started looking at this kind of thing about seven or eight years, you know, six or seven years ago, was that it tended to look at China in a very sort of contemporary way. It didn't really sort of see China as having much of a history, you know, in the region. And that's actually what the book was about. It's about sort of, you know, returning to, you know, returning to what China had done in the past and what it had done in the past, how that might explain what's currently happening and talk about things into the future. So in a sense, it, it was a, a more of a sort of, you know, where, where are we today with, the, with, with China? Um, and also it wanted to move away from just talking about uh, you know, sort of economic and commercial relations, which is what a lot of the, the Belt and Road Initiative talk has been about. Um, so, you know, I, I, I latched on conflict because, of course, that's been sort of, you know, a key you know, point that in, in, in the Middle East, whether it's whether it's been under periods of stabil relative stability, you know, whether that was sort of under, you know, under during the Cold War or the current, you know, more emerging multipolar environment that we've been seeing in the last decade or so. Um, and so really what I wanted to talk about was China as a historical actor in the, in the Middle East. Um, and so where I, and, and if you look at that, you start to see that China didn't just arrive recently. China's presence in the Middle East actually dates back to the 1950s. Um, but its relationship towards you know, the region and its relationship towards the actors that make up the region and conflict there has shifted over time. Um, now, trying to make sense of that, I used a, a number of different sort of frameworks. You know, I employed the, you know, sort of the, the, the idea of, of, you know, in some, some of the critical peace uh, scholarship that emphasizes the difference between sort of positive versus negative peace. Basically, the idea that, you know, conf, you know 
conflict is not just about you know the about physical you know actual manifestation of violence certainly negative peace is often used as is, is that is that sort of catchphrase of just taking a, of the of the non-existence of of war of violence but positive peace is actually something more substantial it involves you know peace building you know uh, sort of development efforts that go beyond just humanitarian assistance to trying to actually find solutions for the grievances and the and the, and the causes causes of the conflict in the, in the in the first place so i was interested in that as as a sort of a framework but also interested in some some of the international relations scholar, uh, literature which talks about you know states relationships with other states and i and admittedly i am limiting myself primarily to state to state relations here um broadly of course there are sort of three different ways that states can interact with each other um this you know either as a sort of supporter of the international system or as a spoiler of the international system or as a shirker and i took these you know sort of very nice alliterative terms you know from randall schweller in his his own book of 2014 um, in which he distinguishes between these different different approaches. Of course, you could also be a little bit more analytical if you wanted to, and distinguish between sort of you know um, you know balancing versus bandwagoning versus neutrality. But I think what it, the essence is is captured in this idea that you you can cooperate, or you can confront, or you and or and challenge, or you can choose to opt out and to step back. And I think what's interesting in the case of these three different approaches is that we see China adopting all three of these, but at different times. Um, so if we look actually, and, and, and I think a lot of the debate and discussion that takes place today is about China wanting to avoid, you know, becoming involved in conflict. So if you think about, you know, the, the sort of the, the deep, you know, I guess the main cleavage, the regional cleavage that exists between the Saudis on one hand and Iran on the other, I mean, it's, fairly clear which side of the fence, you know, the United States as the regional hegemon sits there, you know, but for the Chinese, they have actually tried to avoid getting involved in that conflict. You know, they've tried to straddle both sides. They tried to be, you know, to have, to create good relations with both sides while avoiding getting involved in, in, in any of the any of the conflict between the two sides. Um, and, and that's a term that, you know, off a lot of the people working in international relations call hedging. And, you know, the, there is, of course, a question as to how how far can hedging go in the future. But we'll come that come to that towards the end. Um, but this, so there is a sense of China as a shirker at the moment. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And I start the book, actually, you know, in, 19, in the in the wake of the 1967 war, where you have, you know, uh, an, uh, uh, the Peking News, which was an English language paper, you know, propaganda piece of the Communist Party, you know, writing, you know, waxing lyrical about, about the Palestinian insurgents who, you know, are, are, are mounting cross-border raids from Jordan into, 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 into Israel. And um, what they find, and they sort of write about, you know, what a great you know, effort on, on, on the part of these Palestinian uh, militants to do this. Uh, and also they report that they had learned from the Chinese, they had learned from the Chinese experience of people's war, of the Chinese experience of guerrilla war, um, and were, and you even found one or two of the commanders reading, you know, translated works of Mao's, you know, uh, Mao's own work, work active uh, thoughts about, about, uh, about war. So there was this sense in 1967 of the Chinese, of the Chinese being very enthusiastic about what was going on. You know, in that respect, which stands very stands in marked contrast with today, which is that you know they stand they say we support the Oslo process, we support you know the idea of negotiations and a Palestinian state. Um, it's a very different language. So if I sort of go back to sort of China's you know initial entry into uh, the, the 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 Middle East, it was back in the 1950s. In in you know 
after sort of, you know, China had settled itself, you know, both internally as well as regionally after the Korean War, you had, you know, sort of the Bandung Conference, which was the point, the moment at which sort of the global south, the developing world starts to sort of try to build bonds that sort of, you know, exclude the superpowers like, like the United States and, 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 the, and the Soviet Union. And in that period, the Chinese finds their way, you know, into the Middle East. Um, they do find a bit of a problem because, of course, initially, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union is the, is the senior communist party, uh, the senior communist partner for, for, for most for in, in the region. And so the Chinese are sort of the junior partner. So they're most if there's going to be any kind of relations, it's going to be primarily with with uh, with with the Soviet Union. So what the Chinese really do is they're looking for, you know, uh, those little gaps, if they as, as it were. And so they actually establish relations with, you know, um, national liberation movements, initially in Algeria, and they supported the Algerian uh, War of Independence, and subsequently with the PLO with the Palestinians. Uh, and into the 1960s, they move into a much more, you know, active support for these movements, you know, they provide, you know, small arms and financing to, you know, the, the Defaris, which is basically a, a bunch of, you know, Gulf separatists, you know, sort of in the Oman region. Uh, they provided assistance to the Eritrean liberation movement in its struggle against the Ethiopians. It backed the, the Palestinians. And all of this was going on, you know, especially in the latter part of the 1960s, which is in marked contrast with what we, we think about when it comes to China today. By contrast, what we see from about 1970 onwards is a shift. And this actually sort of starts to, this predates Mao's death. Um, a lot of this is down to you know, potentially some changes. It's, it's down partly to some of the changes that are happening within China. There is the end of the cultural revolution. There is the end of you know, sort of the radical you know, fervor associated with that. Uh, and and a realize and where and in, meanwhile within the region a realization that they need to establish relations uh, with some of these states that supporting these you know insurgent groups is going to be problematic if they want to have a more you know stable bilateral you know formal relationship with some of these states. If we think about the Gulf as well, this is a period where the where the, the where Britain is withdrawing its own presence in the Gulf uh, and where you know. A state like Iran has some some influence, and so for the, at that point, actually, the, the the Chinese established diplomatic relations with the Iranians. Actually, then then under the Shah. So what you find is this sort of shift from you know support for insurgents, this spoiler role, if you will, you know, a challenging role to the sort of the, the established to the established system, uh, towards one that is much more sort of you know discreet, one that is you know sort of in, that seeks to be less disruptive. Um, and especially when Deng, Deng Xiaoping takes over the leadership, you know, after after a, a few periods of of internal struggle in the late 1970s, there is a recognition and a shift that, you know, whereas before we've had this policy of, you know, confrontation and challenge. Now we want to have one that is much more uh, you know, geared towards, you know, focusing a foreign policy geared towards the, you know, enhancing Chinese development at home. So what we need is, you know, better formal relations with these countries. We need trade relations with these countries. Um, but at this particular point, China is not a prior, China is not primarily concerned by energy consumption. Um, you know, its main sort of point of contact uh, is with, with the region in terms of trade is actually through arms. And so we see that, you know, during the, I think the Iran-Iraq war during the 1980s is significant because China becomes, you know, a key provider of a seller of arms to both sides in a way that, you know, was less, less obvious for, for other countries. Um, 
at the same time, it started to, there was a, a rapprochement that existed that took place with the Israelis. You know, the, the, although diplomatic relations with Israel were established in, in, the, in the early 1990s, you know, during the course of the 1980s, there was this you know, initial, initial clandestine arms trade, primarily motivated by you know, the Chinese needing to upgrade their Soviet era military equipment, which they did not have access to uh, because they were in a situation in an awkward situation with the Soviets but the Israelis had it because they had captured a lot of this equipment on the battlefield in 67. So the arms trade was an important you know sort of entry point in for you know Chinese relations in in in, in the region you know during the 1980s including with Saudi Arabia you know the, the sale of certain kinds of missiles to Saudi Arabia that the Americans wouldn't do. From the 1990s, of course, we have a much more you know, sort of energy oriented policy that, you know, from 1993, China becomes a, a, a net energy importer. And so suddenly, you know, sort of uh, oil and gas from the Gulf becomes increasingly important as well as from Iran. Um, so all, keeping all of this in mind, you know, this uh, means that when you come in the 1990s, you find the Chinese are quite equivocal when it comes to, uh, you know, the Gulf crisis of 1990, you know, when Iraq invades Kuwait. Um, the Chinese are not enthusiastic by the, the prospect of, of a war, but neither are they going to, you know, concede that, the that the Iraq is in a position to occupy Kuwait. Ideally, they would see solution by dialogue. Uh, in the end, of course, this doesn't happen. Um, and of course, you know, with the, subsequently with the, the war in 2003, the Chinese take a step away from that. They're not thrilled by it, but neither do they confront the Americans uh, in the same way that the French and the Russians threatened to use their veto in the Security Council. The Chinese stay apart from this. And yet what's interesting is that post-2003 with Iraq, we actually see, you know, a, the, although the Americans, you know, were the uh, uh, you know, occupy the country. It's actually the Chinese that step in and suddenly finds you know all of these you know contracts available to sort of help you know develop and redevelop the energy infrastructure and other you know infrastructure in in, in that country. So there was actually quite a, quite a neatly sort of uh, pointed article that was published a few few years after, which asked the question you know did China actually win the Iraq War in two thousand and three. Um, Part of this was, you know, I think helped by the fact that the Chinese had sort of taken this distance from, you know, becoming involved in the, com in, in the conflict uh, that had, had been associated with, with, uh, with, with Iraq there. Um, of course, things become more problematically problematic if we think over the last decade. You know, when the uprisings began, you know, in, in Tunisia, Egypt and Libya, you know, China's immediate reaction was, you know, this is worrying, this is problematic, this is, we're worried that the, that the, that the, it, that this might actually encourage, you know, similar interest and motivation in, you know, in the homeland. And whether it's in places like Shanghai or Hong Kong, or even in places like Xinjiang. Um, so what you find is that China becomes much more sort of geared towards, you know, regional stability, working with regional partners. And of course, this sort of, you know, flows in with the idea of the Belt and Road. Um, I, mean, I, may, if, I mean, I'm sure that people will maybe want to talk more specifically about some of the specific conflicts that, that took place, although I'm just trying to give you a broad overview of, of sort of, you know, Chinese, you know, Chinese, Chinese positions and relations to all of this. Um, thinking about, you know, sort of China's 
China's approach to conflict more generally, more recently, uh, as I flagged up, you know, China's approach is primarily to be one to, to hedge, to avoid getting sort of tied up in uh, in, in in conflicts uh, or, or having to take a position, you know, too too overtly a position. Um, of course, that is more problematic when it comes into a position where it's it has you know significant interests and investments already present. And in this in this respect, I think looking at what's happened uh, in relation to uh, the JCPOA and the Iran nuclear deal, I think is quite relevant here. So the Chinese, you know, the Europeans and the Americans obviously have very little influence or leverage over, over the Iranians, but the Chinese do, partly because the Chinese have significant, have, have invested significantly in that country. And also because, you know, China is an important destination for Iranian oil, whether it is, you know, legal or in over the last year or so clandestine. Um, the, what is interesting about the Chinese approach there is that they would not want to get involved in, in sort of the dif differences and disputes either between the Saudis and the Iranians or the Americans and the Iranians, but they had to simply because of their, their interests there. And what you find is that they actually took an approach which was to become a mediator, um, not, a, not a sort of an intense, you know, sort of, you know, pulling people around the table and, and, and refusing to unlocking the door and not letting people out until they've agreed, but more trying to find points of, points of, uh, mutual overlap and trying to push the Iranians towards the West and while hold it pushing back on too overtly or too confrontational a stance from the West. Um, and that's, that's actually sort of something that they've not done just in the case of Iran. Uh, in the book, I actually go back and look at what happened in Sudan, especially in the, in the wake of the Darfur crisis in 2003, 2004. There you had the Chinese playing a similar role as a mediator between you know, the then government of Bashar Omar Bashir uh, on the one side and the West on the other. And part of the reason that the Chinese got involved in that Sudanese mediation was, part, was because they had invested significantly in the country in the late 1990s. So, you know, it was in Chinese interests to protect, protect those investments. Um, it wasn't, it didn't want to get too involved, but it had to, it was forced to. And that's actually sort of an interesting point to make about Belt and Road, because often we look at Belt and Road as, you know, sort of China avoiding, you know, becoming involved in confronta confrontation and conflict. But the fact is, is that, you know, if companies, you know, Chinese companies, even if they are mostly state companies, are going to invest, that is putting down some risk, and they are going to want to see some degree of security there. That will mean that, in some respects, China will be dra drawn into some of these you know, conflict zones, whether it wants to or not. Now, flip side to that, of course, is that it's not necessarily the case that Chinese you know, uh, investment and interests are going to be uh, uniform in the Middle East. That's certainly not the case. And so and we've already seen that with you know, most countries that are either in Central Asia, South Asia, or in the Middle East have shown an interest in the Belt and Road. Uh, they've signed up to the idea of the Belt and Road. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Chinese investment, that, that money is going to follow the flag. And I think the classic example here is the Syri in Syria. We're now at a state point where you know, this, the war seems to be coming to an end and it's coming to an end in Assad's favor. So now the debate is shifting towards what about reconstruction? Uh, it's gonna be very difficult to see funding coming from, from, from the West with Assad currently in power. Uh, the Russians and the Iranians who are Assad's allies, you know, do not have the resources for, to be able to provide sufficient reconstruction funds there, partly because of sanctions on both. So there is a question is, will the Chinese step into all of this? And certainly the Syrian regime has been very enthusiastic in trying to play up 
its relationship with China. It's flag. It's made the point that you know during the course of the war, the Chinese never you know sort of rejected or challenged un or undermined Assad's status. Um, but at the same time, uh, the Chinese have not really said if they're willing to invest. So what you found is these statements made by Assad and his colleague and, and his government, you know, emphasizing wanting to encourage Chinese investment, but not necessarily, you know, Chinese investment being forthcoming. That actually, of course, is beneficial for the Chinese because it plays up, you know, it adds prestige and luster to them. It makes them look better, even if they don't necessarily have to put any money down there. Um, so in the Syria, so the case of the Syrian war, I think, is quite interesting in this respect. The Chinese did not really take you know, much of an involvement there. Um, and if we also want to sort of touch upon briefly, I guess, the, uh, you know, the involvement of, you know, a groups like ISIS slash the Islamic State, you know, this was a problem for the Chinese. Um, you know, they did provide some, some assistance behind the scenes. We don't know how much, but, you know, in terms of logistics, in terms of sort of, you know, sort of guidance and assistance, there was a willingness to do that, but never to do it in partnership with other countries, like, for example, you know, the Western countries. It did it on its own terms. And that you can actually see that, that it's done similar sort of things, you know, elsewhere. So if you think about the Horn of Africa, for example, in the, during the period of the, you know, the high point of the, the piracy, the period of piracy that was happening around the Somali coast, you found China sending warships to take part in these security measures to rid the area of pirates. You know, the Europeans had their ships there, um, you know, as part of the Atalanta initiative. The Koreans sent, you know, sent, sent uh, support uh, primarily with other Western powers. But the Chinese operated, but they operated in parallel. And I think that's pretty much what we're going to see happening, you know, when it comes to China's approach towards conflict, both within the Middle East as well as more generally. It's going to do it, but it's on its own terms. And this is a point that I raised in the, you know, I flag up at the very end of the book, um, but also sort of go into a little bit more detail in the War on the Rocks uh, article that I've, I, I mentioned at the, at, the, at the outset. There is an interesting debate about sort of, you know, what is going to be, how is, can China actually make a difference in terms of, you know, post-conflict situations? Um, you know, China has broadly tried to avoid getting involved in any kind of, you know, conflict dispute or conflict resolution. But increasingly, there is a debate. It's an unofficial one going on among some Chinese scholars and, and, some, of the, and some of the China's ex-Middle East envoys about does China have a role to play in reconstruction? And this is coming, coming about in a concept called peace through development or you know, development for peace, in which China sort of sees, you know, Belt and Road and other types of, you know, bilateral uh, interaction with regional governments as a way to try and find a, a, a solution, as a way to try and mediate conflict or resolve conflict. Of course, there is a problem with this because, you know, uh, given that China's relations are relationships are primarily bilateral, they're primarily done state to state rather than, you know, people to people, this limits the the ability to be able to interact with you know beyond the beyond the state and this is problematic in the case of syria um you know there is a sense that you know can there be any kind of meaningful you know reconstruction or resolution to the to the to the, to the conflicts that have emerged in that war uh if assad remains in power if there is no sort of meaningful uh transition you know uh meaningful justice for for victims of the war and the chinese don't seem to have made any kind of statements about that instead the chinese approach has been you know, reconstruction, rebuilding infrastructure, you know, building, you know, building public services, hospitals, schools, transport. Um, this will provide the basis for society to be able to, you know, 
move forward, but no discussion as to how to actually resolve some of the problems that happen that that are in, still existing within the within society there. But it's something that I think that's that's an area for further debate and discussion. Um, so. I think I'll just leave it there to basically summarize the points that I've made. You know, China has shifted from having been an active supporter of conflict you know, back in the, in the 1950s and in the 1960s towards one that is much more you know, wary of it. Uh, but also the question is now that of, you know, what is China as a post-conflict actor as much as a conflict actor? So thank you again for giving me the time to talk and, and I hope we can have a, a fruitful discussion. Thank you, Dr. Burton. I think... Uh... Everyone would agree that you have really picked our interest in the book and you have given us a very good uh, you know, view of how the Chinese position on the conflicts in the region have evolved and how China has also adjusted uh, in terms of uh, you know, its own interest. One of the things which I, uh, which I noticed uh, also while going through the book and during your discussion is that most of the discussion on China and the Middle East focuses on the economic aspect of Chinese, you know, uh, involvement in the Middle East. It's all about economy, energy, and so on and so forth. But what you have done in the book is that you have taken the focus slightly away and, uh, you know, talked about how China has evolved in terms of its engagement with the conflict. And this also brings... Uh, I mean, and if, if, if we look at the questions uh, which are raised on in, in India on China, uh, in terms of what kind of power China is, I mean, and we, we keep kind of discussing, discussing a lot in terms of whether China is a disruptive power. It, it is a global power now. It is a, one of the most prominent rising power in the world. Uh, and uh, whether it is a disruptive power or is it more a constructive power? Uh, I would say, I mean, the opinion still remains divided, even though with the current, you know, developments, especially in India, uh, I would say this, the opinion is kind of moving away in one direction. Uh, perhaps you can, and with, with your experience of studying the Chinese involvement uh, in the Middle East, perhaps you can give some comments on that. Uh, and... Uh, we have a few questions already here, but perhaps you can, if you want to react to this point, uh, perhaps you can start with that and then we can take the, some more questions. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and, and that's actually a really interesting point, which is like, is, you know, what is, what is China's orientation? And I think sometimes this is one of the problems that I find with some of the IR literature, that it's kind of, it, 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 it tries to sort of establish these kind of positions in a very discrete manner whereas actually there's kind of a lot of things you know it's sometimes you can be straddling or transcending some of these concepts at the same time so if you go back and look in you know about 15 20 years ago a lot of the discussion around sort of the rise of these emerging powers you know post 2001 there was a big debate and i'm not talking about just china because also india was combined in there and brazil the BRICS. Um, there was a dis debate and discussion as to you know are these are these rising powers you know to what extent are they going to support the international system? Because, you know, they've benefited from the economic opportunities, you know, they've, they've get, gained through globalization and free trade. And, they, and because of that, that's their base, you know, their economic base has given them the, 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 you know, the, the capacity to be able to project on the world stage. So, you know, they have a reason to support that international system. But on the other side, you know, they, these are, 
you know, countries from the global south, from the developing worlds, they do not necessarily share, you know, uh, identity with, um, you know, the hegemon. So if we think about, you know, again, if we go back to the BRICS, you know, Brazil does, I mean, well, at least until recently, you know, it did not want to see itself as being part of, you know, America's backyard. Right. So there is this sort of sense of, you know, we do want to transform the world. We want to change it, make, make it, make it, make the system reflect our rise more effectively. And I guess if we're thinking about countries like Brazil and India and South Africa, you know, one of the key points for them was always membership on the UN Security Council. Right. So, so there is this, so there is a sense that actually, you know, the literature sort of distinguished between these two, but actually there's this kind of blurring, if you want to call it that. And if you look at China in the Middle East, there is this sense that actually on the one hand, you know, it does not, you know, it's, it's opposed to American dominance, but on the other hand, it's benefited from American dominance, right? So it, it and, and in a way, the Ameri this is where I sort of come back to the point I made about, you know, post 2003, the American occupation, okay, granted, we may debate whether or not it provided that much security on the ground, but America was effectively the main security provider, you know, to Iraq. And it was in the context of that security provision that the Chinese were able to make their economic, um, you know, advances. So, you know, they actually, so, so, you know, China benefited really from, you know, from, from the American presence there, so much to the point that actually in 2014, Obama grumbled about China free riding, you know, on American uh, security. And so this is something that I think we need to think about going forward, because one, one thing that you know, deeply frustrates me is, especially in the mainstream media, there is a lot of this debate and discussion, there's a lot of this talk about, well, America's withdrawing from the region, it's retreating from the region, so therefore, you know, China must somehow fill it in. You know, as if the tide is going out, so something else must come in. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's looking at things from, you know, in a very crude way and not taking into account how Beijing sees it. And I think, you know, it makes sense to actually sort of take, take on board the, the Chinese worldview. I mean, you know, if, if, I mean, I think several, you know, there's been a number of people who've, who've looked at this, um, you know, from, from Kerry Brown and, you know, at Kings in, in London through, you know, to, to other, other studies, which point out that the Chinese, you know, view of the world is, is, can be sort of portrayed as a, as a series of concentric circles. So the highest priority, the most important thing that matters to the Chinese leadership, you know, is, 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 the, par is the party and the party maintaining its control over the country. That, then it's about the homeland, right? Control over, you know, the Chinese heartland, Shanghai, you know, sort of, uh, you know, through to, 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 to Guangzhou and elsewhere. Then the border regions, you know, sort of the more problematic ones, you know, sort of the, you know, that places like, you know, Tibet, Xinjiang, which, you know, you have a sort of a more precarious relationship between, you know, society and the state. Beyond that, then you're looking at the littoral, you're looking at Taiwan, you're looking at South China Sea. Now, these are the priorities for, 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 for China, for the Chinese leadership. You know, it is about, you know, ensuring its security at home and in its home neighborhood rather than sort of, you know, abroad. Yes, I mean, it's nice to have, you know, influence uh, in, in the Middle East. But as I flagged up with, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the debate, that the discussion that's gone on with Syrian reconstruction, you know, it's been, it's been much more about the Syrians saying the Chinese can come in and help. The Chinese have not done anything here. But... That conversation, when it's sort of projected, you know, through media and stuff, makes the Chinese look good. It makes them look more like a global power. So I, I don't know if that helps a little bit with, with, with what you're I think, asking. I think that, that really gives a very good idea of what exactly, you know, how, how uh, academic, you know, looks at 
the developments and how the popular debate most of the time you know kind of uh, uh, makes it into very crude very uh, you know simplistic uh, you know dimensions of any 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 issue and china obviously uh, gets a lot of attention these days uh, we have uh, professor koichiro tanaka from uh, japan with us may i request professor to please ask your question if you if you can well uh could you hear me yes right okay well thank you uh, mr burton for your excellent presentation and i'm really uh, interested in getting hold of your of the copy of your latest book now uh, my question is about the chinese policy vis-a-vis nonproliferation now we've seen as you have uh, rightly mentioned and pointed out that during the jcpoa or the formation of the jcpoa uh, the negotiations that led to jcpoa prc played a very positive role trying to help the two sides mainly the americans and the europeans on one side and the iranians not to um leave the uh, negotiating table and i think that uh, their interest of uh, the chinese interest here is that they don't want to see a turmoil in the region as well as not not to see any other uh state becoming a de facto nuclear state uh so it's uh, iran so now uh given that sort of a traditional or maybe uh, sort of a long standing uh position by the chinese now we've seen some sort of a report coming from the wall street journal i believe about a month ago when it talked about a facility nuclear facility being built inside the saudi kingdom with the help of the chinese without the consent or any sort of a reporting to the iaea and also to the public now if this report happens to be true i'm quite wondering what sort of a change or any sort of a dynamics uh, what sort of a dynamics here might have played into the idea of the chinese to um say uh, proceed with a cooperation nuclear cooperation of this nature mm. well th- thank you for the, for that question it's it's a good point because i mean i flag up in the in the chapter on on china and iran that actually um you know china's committed to nonproliferation you know both globally as well as within the region and you know as it it's but it also says at the same time that it supports you know nuclear programs and participation in nuclear programs so long as they're peaceful and actually you know the chinese were involved in iran's nuclear program you know during during the 1980s um and into the, uh, well yeah in the, during the 1980s it pulls out in 1997 and actually it pulls out more less because of you know uh, you know it's it's individual relationship with with iran and more about you know because of its the prospects of better relations with the united states which is an interesting thing so when you think about that tri- so if you think about in a triangular relationship between the us iran and china you know, the us is always far more important for both of them for both of those for the other two than than each other um so you know the chinese pulled out uh, of of that and it was and even, and after the you know sort of the, the development of the of the iran's nuclear program post 2002 when the europeans start to take the lead in trying to sort of um you know mediate and manage and contain the 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 program you see the chinese accepting yes non proliferation is what we want but at the same time we don't want too tough a sanctions regime they go along with sanctions but so long as they're not too tough 
Um, and I think that's so there's there is this kind of sort of balancing act that they're constantly trying to do. Now, in the case of, of Saudi Arabia, you're quite right. I mean, you know, it does seem odd that in the context of all of this, why on earth would they have sort of agreed to, you know, signing up to a nuclear program? I guess on the at this at this moment, you know, it's kind of it's based on the assumption that, yes, this is going to be, um, you know, a civilian program. Yes, there's no, you know, that it's not got any kind of um, military intent, although any kind of nuclear program has, you know, potential dual use. So this is deeply, this is problematic, but at the same time, I think, you know, maybe they kind of are fitting it in, because bear in mind that China has a comprehensive strategic partnership, which is the highest level of partnership it can have with both Saudi and Saudi Arabia and Iran. And part of the, part of its goals with Saudi Arabia is to sort of in, co cooperate in the diversification of energy, you know, or diversification of econ economic activity and energy. Um, so beyond just, oil and oil and gas to include things like nuclear power so i guess that's kind of where they're fit, they're sitting in but as you say we we don't we've only only recently heard about this from the wsj wsj right. i mean i think the you know it's going to become i mean as as and when things become more concrete and we have some clearer ideas of you know how how far how willing are the saudis to actually you know follow up you know, to, to align themselves with things like the atomic agencies uh, the atomic authorities uh, you know requirements then we might see whether the chinese will be further going further down that path or pulling back a bit um, but it does also it's also interesting to look at how you know they they made this decision in complete isolation from their you know relations with iran um it, which sort of says to me that there's you know some people sort of i mean one this is another sort of you know cliche that i find really frustrating about sort of you know china is this kind of like omnipotent wise you know strategic you know actor uh, when in actual fact a lot of this stuff could just be being done you know on short-term transactional basis we don't know because a lot of the decision making is taking place within a very small coterie of people around she you know xi jinping so yeah great well thank you for your explanation yeah yeah thanks thanks guy since we are discussing uh, saudi arabia and china and the issues related to that we had a question by Mr. Nadeem Ahmed. Uh, Nadeem, would you like to ask your question? Uh, yeah, am I audible? Yes, you are. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let me at the outset uh, thank the presentation and the presenter. I mean, obviously it was a very insightful uh, engagement uh, overall. <clears throat> my question, I'll keep my question very short. I mean, the energy partnership for Saudi Arabia with China still remains important as Beijing is still, <coughs> excuse me, a premier client of Saudi oil. However, the present functional relationship between um, Saudi Arabia and its allies with China does not seem to replace uh, America in Riyadh's worldview. So in that case, how much significance does China actually hold when it comes to regional conflicts or crisis? And would or could Beijing take any significant steps for mediation between rivals, in, be it in Persian Gulf or Eastern Mediterranean? And how, how, how would it uh, imply in, in the overall regional stability of Middle East? Thank you. Well, th thank you for that question, Nadim. I mean, so the, I mean, the Chinese approach has been primarily to sort of focus on sort of economic commercial uh, relations more than security, although there is there is a growing security partnership as part as part of these kind of interactions that it has, including in the Gulf and with both Saudi Arabia and and Iran. Uh, but what it tries to make it make 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 clear is that this is not going to be sort of offensive. That this is you know more just a sort of a a point of contact. Um, and and certainly there is no desire on by, by either the Saudi or the Chinese to you know 
challenge or replace the United States. But I think, you know, we've also got to keep in mind, you know, the, the United States itself under Trump, it's become an increase, you know, there has been an increasing degree of, un, you know, unreliability. So this has actually created, you know, its own problems in the Gulf. So you've seen Gulf, not just the Saudis, but the Emiratis, the Qataris and others um, trying to diverse, he, you know, hedge against this as well. So you're seeing a diversification of, of security relations and partnerships by these, these actors to compensate for you know, insta uncertainty around the United States. So it's actually sort of a two-way process. The other thing you also flagged up about energy. I mean, I, I, did a, I, I wrote a, a report for, for the Basola Institute you know, in Brussels earlier in the year, in which you know, I was looking at sort of uh, connectivity between Asia and, 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 and the Gulf. And what's the, one of the interesting things is, of course, yes, you know, energy tends, is still seen as you know, the, the paramount point of or the paramount vector between, you know, uh, Asia slash China and, and, and the region, but it's not the only one. And I think this is something we need to kind of move away from this obsession that it's always about oil and gas. Um, what you're seeing is, a, you know, because the, obviously the Gulf countries themselves are trying to diversify, they want to diversify their economies. And you are seeing, you know, a, a, broad, a broadening and a widening and a deepening of the economic exchange that is taking place between, you know, Gulf states and, and Asian states. Um, you are seeing a lot more foreign investment, um, you know, by the sovereign wealth funds, uh, you know the, the the Saudi the Saudi one the largest one um, the public investment fund has invested massively you know in Asia it's investing in healthcare it's investing in real estate a lot of that in the Chinese market so likewise you're seeing the Chinese doing similar you know obviously trying to diversify so it's so this is obviously spreading the risk a little bit as well um, of course as well you know yes also I think what's worth keeping in mind is currently this year with obviously COVID that's seen oil prices crash. Uh, and of course, that was very beneficial for the Chinese because they were able to sort of pick up, you know, at very low cost. Um, so in that in that sense, the relationship was skewed much more towards the Chinese than it is than it was to the Saudis. And also keep in mind that currently, you know, the even though OPEC Plus has agreed, you know, to um, you know to to a certain level of production cuts in order to keep prices at around forty dollars a barrel, this is still forty dollars less than the Chinese than the Saudis need to break even. So, you know, the Saudis are, you know, really do need to diversify. Thanks, uh, Guy. We have uh, Ambassador Sanjay Singh with us. Uh, Ambassador Singh has uh, served as India's ambassador in Tehran, and he was also uh, the secretary in Middle East, um, the Ministry of External Affairs. Uh, sir, would you like to ask your question? I uh, thank you, Madhasi. That was a very interesting talk, and I quite enjoyed uh, listening to it. I'm sorry, my internet connection seemed to be giving trouble. So you, so I'll try and ask a question. Uh, you've described the steady transformation of Chinese approach to the region, and what motivates uh, their uh, relationships in the region. As China uh, grows as China assumes greater strength, comprehensive national power, as they put it. How will it change the transformist relationship with the region? Will it go into setting norms and rules, which BRI to an extent does? And will it go beyond being just transactional to a larger engagement, which may not be immediately beneficial to itself? 
Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that question, Ambassador Singh. I mean, this is really this is and this is ultimately one of you know a question that we don't really have an answer for because it depends on the nature of the of the Middle East. You know how it will evolve. Um, you know, we're currently in this state where the 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 regional system is in a state of fragmentation. You know, where you have a series of you know failed and failing states. Um, you've got both you know regional states as well as non-state actors like ISIS who've tried to exploit that. You know. So you've had a, a series of sort of proxy conflicts that have taken place, whether it's in Syria, yet yeah, well, I mean, obviously there are domestic reasons for that, but also, you know, Iran, Saudi, the Qataris, Turks, and others have tried to exploit those conflicts to their own advantage. And so basically, how do the Chinese navigate all of that? Um, you know, to a large part, they've tried to sit out from these particular, you know, conflicts. Um, what we've seen is, um, in a way, on the Syrian war, it's pretty much deferred to the Russians, you know, allowed the Russians to do much of the running in terms of providing a counterweight to the Western position on, on Syria. In the case of Libya, where you've effectively got, yeah, I mean, yes, series of militias at the grassroots levels, but crudely, you know, two poles, you know, operating, you know, the Chinese kind of sort of st st sat back and say, you know, we're willing to engage and interact but we need to know you know we want we want a, a unified government we want a solution that is you know, settled by the libyans themselves although interestingly at certain points you know it has had contact and engagement with both sides so often you know the the, the chinese position is to say that we support the you know the the officially recognized government whether that's in yemen or in libya but it has also had you know contacts whether it was with uh, you know haftas you know, sort of a Tobruk government in, in Libya or with the Houthis, you know, who, who had sent a delegation to Beijing. Um, so I think, you know, there is this idea of sort of trying to keep, you know, talking to both sides, but not necessarily, you know, sort of, uh, you know, coming down on one side or the other. And that may well work for now. But as I also said in my sort of closing, closing remarks, you know, Belt and Road, you know, one of the things it's going to do is, you know, it's a very open-ended, you know, ambiguous, vague project you know there's it's there's no map there's no specific countries anyone can sign up to it but you know it also has potential unintended consequences and one of those may be that as the chi as china becomes more and more invested you know in a country um as it's come as its comp state companies become more involved in those com in those countries it's going to need to require it's going to need to become more involved in, in terms of providing security what we saw in iraq for example post 2003 was that a lot of the um you know I flagged up the point that the, that, that the Chinese benefited under American security provision. But what was interesting was that much of China's you know, contracts with the Iraqi authorities and the oil companies was really in the south of the country. So when you had that whole you know, ISIS advance in, in, the, in, the, in, the spring, in the spring and summer of 2014, you know, that swept across Iraq um, from, from, from Syria, much of what was uh, you know, Chinese interests were not affected. I think there was one installation that was affected and they abandoned it. Um, but they were helped by, they were, they, in that respect, they were not directly affected by, you know, sort of the, the instability that generated as a result. However, there has been some discussion since then about, you know, what, what is the most appropriate way for China to, um, you know, ensure security for these kind of investments and for these infrastructure projects. Uh, typically, they've supported, you know, that national, gov national government, national forces will provide that kind of assistance. But as we've seen, you know, in a place like Iraq, you know, where you've got, um, uh, you know, the state is relatively weak in places, there's been a reliance on militias and on these, on these pat patriotic mi uh, military units. Um, so there is an increasing pressure 
in China for, you know, the establishment of, I guess, kind of equivalent of Blackwater, you know, sort of, you know, Chinese security companies to provide protection to, you know, their workers and, and projects in these countries. Um, that's, of course, an, you know, an, a unilateral individual approach. Uh, but it, of course, if you're thinking about sort of broader, pro, you know, broader sort of security cooperation, I mean, that's going on, as we've seen, you know, it's they're taking part in, in, in various naval exercises with the Iranians, they've done this with the Gulf, with, with the Arab Gulf countries, but always with the idea of, you know, we do not want to get involved in your conflicts. Uh, but if we need, if we need to, you know, they have also offered to mediate as well. Um, you know, there's been offers, you know, for example, after when the if you think of back to 2017 and the and the the, the crisis uh, between Saudi Arabia and the UAE on one side and Qatar on the other, you know, the Chinese were worried about that. They feared what that might do for its for their own investments in the region as well as their those 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 countries' investments in China. And so they offered to mediate, but they did they neither pushed that very hard nor did they sort of. You know, and, and, and actually, to be honest with you, when the Kuwaitis stepped in, the Chinese were very happy with that as an alternative. I'm sorry, it's a very roundabout route to answering the question. Thank but you, I thank you very much. Would you hazard a guess into when hubris will set in? Sorry? When hubris will set in. I, I'm sorry, I missed that. Would you hazard a guess yes. when China hubris will set in? Um, I, I missed I miss that. Sorry, Mudassa. I, I just didn't, uh, wasn't coming through. He's talking about when hubris will set in. Ah, yes, yes. Well, there is always that risk, isn't there? And I mean, this is one of the things, and I think, you know, if we want to look at maybe, maybe, maybe the Middle East isn't, the, isn't the, the place to look for, maybe closer to home is. And I think, you know, this is one of the things where I think, uh, you know, we look at, um, you know, China's military strategy in relation to, you know, what it's going to do about the South China Sea or, you know, in relation to Taiwan. There is a risk, of course, you know, that, I mean, what it's trying to do is to try and, you know, advance its interests and to be as, as assertive as possible and to be as coercive as possible while not, um, you know, resorting to all out war, trying to get what it get, trying to get what it wants without having to fight for it. There is always the danger that it might overstep. Um, I mean, one of the things, so I don't know if that, that sort of, you know, touches on those, some of those points, but certainly I think, for example, if we go back and think about, you know, one of the things that is interesting, because I see there was another question earlier, which is like, what do the, what do Middle East people think, or what, what does, what does the Middle East society think about China? And the answer to that is not very much, right? There's, there's, if you look at, there's some really good, um, you know, polling by Pew Data, um, which looks at sort of, you know, different countries, and there's generally sort of, I guess, a sort of a favorable opinion towards China, partly because they don't know much about China. Um, but what is interesting is that, you know, when the Islamic State, you know, swept into Mosul in Iraq in 2014, and, you know, you know Abu, Abu Baghdadi, you know, made his sermon, he didn't just target the West, he targeted, you know, some of the countries from the global South, including India and China. And, you know, talked about, you know, our Muslim brothers in Xinjiang. So, you know, the middle, you know, there is this idea that, you know, Middle East and China are very far away, but actually they're not that far away either. So. Yeah, I think th thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Burton. I think that, uh, uh, you know, answers a lot of uh, questions uh, which were asked earlier also. Uh, we have a couple of more questions. If you, if you allow, we can perhaps extend it a bit. <laughs> uh, Dr. Moinuddin Ahmed uh, wanted to ask a question. Moinuddin, would you like to come in here? 
Yeah, thank you, Dr. Burton. Uh, uh, you've uh, just uh, uh, you know answered my question. I was concerned about the popular perception of China because China has been in the imagination of people from the Middle East. And uh, my only concern was that is China seen as an inclusive superpower coming to the Middle East? But uh, you know, partially you answered uh, my question. Uh, but if you have anything more to say, that that will only add to my knowledge. Thank you. Well, I mean, and just to sort of add to that, I mean, obviously there's been quite, you know, been a bit of discussion, especially last year when a number of the countries in the region, um, you know, put their name to or agree, you know, sort of cited a letter, signed a letter saying that the Chinese uh, position on Xinjiang was totally, totally acceptable, um, you know, that there wasn't any problems with, um, but it's also important to keep in mind that these are, these were governments, right, rather than sort of, you know, societies and and i and whereas i think you know so there is this obviously this, this this so there is a sense that sometimes put out that you know the chinese and and you know the chinese in the middle and, and governments in the middle east are as one when it comes to xinjiang and, and and to the uyghurs but that's debatable and and it also and that's actually comes back to you know quite to asking the, to the point that ambassador singh asked about you know hubris one of the dangers of course for the chinese is that you know by engaging too much or relying too much on its relationships with the region's governments, you know, it runs the risk that the, that previous, you know, hegemonic powers have had, which is, you know, that you rely on these guys. And when these guys fall, you have nobody else. We saw that in 2011, you know, the Americans were caught in a really difficult position when the protests started against Mubarak because Egypt had always been a reliable ally you know, for, for, for the United States. Uh, but then suddenly, you know, Obama was caught with his own, in his own rhetoric, having been in Egypt two years earlier, talking about the importance of democracy and human rights. How could he then, you know, defend Mubarak? Uh, and so, you know, the Americans found it very difficult to sort of you know, straddle both sides. Now, the Chinese don't have that problem because they've never talked about democracy and human rights. But what they do, but the problem is, is that by relying too much on the government's and, and basing their relations on the, in the region on those states, if and if we see further sort of up, you know, uh, intifadas and uprisings and and people being thrown thrown out, that could be very problematic for the Chinese. Thank you, uh, Dr. Burton. Uh, we uh, Alvaid, would you like to come in now? You wanted to ask something. Get it. Yes, I'll wait. Yes, I'll wait. Thank you. Uh, stop the button to book. So that mentioned I'll wait. I'll wait. Yeah. your voice is not uh, clear. If you can perhaps try and switch off the video, maybe uh, the, there would be more bandwidth for audio. We can't hear you all right. Maybe uh, uh, maybe you can come uh, a little later, or maybe I can read the read your question. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we have Professor uh, Professor Grijesh Pant also with us, who has uh, you know been uh, who has been engaged in the study of uh, Gulf region and the Middle East for a very long time. Uh, so, if you are here, would you like to uh, ask a question or any comment?
it seems there is some network problem uh, at Alvite's end. So you can probably read the question. Yeah, I'll rather read the question. Mm-hmm. So Alvite wanted to ask about uh, in which potential areas, according to you, are China Middle East cooperation going to pay, pose a major challenge to India's Middle East policy? So some sort of a comparative, you know, about India's engagement with the region and Chinese engagement with the Middle East. And, uh, you know, whether growing partnership with Iran, uh, especially in the current news about the long-term strategic cooperation plan between China and Iran. So how how should India react to that? What kind of reaction, you know, if, if you can show, shed some light right. on that? Yeah, well, thank, thank you for that. I mean, so, yeah, I just I just read the question, question as well. I mean, I guess, so... As I understand it, you know, sort of the the Indian, sort of the, much of the bulk of India's Middle East policy, as, such as it is, you know, is is focused around the Gulf, and and actually that's kind of similar, right, I think, for China as well. Um, you know, the 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 depth or sort of the 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 intensity and the and the depth of the of the relations are much much greater with with the, in the Gulf region than they are elsewhere. Um, and in that sense, I think, you know, there is actually some complementarity that's going on. You know, uh, the more projects, the more sort of Belt and Road projects that, you know, that come to the Gulf, you know, the more po- more possibility there is for, for you know, for, you know, c- construction work projects that, you know, a lot of, you know, South Asians, you know, work on. So there is that opportunity there. I mean, I guess if you're asking more specifically about the, the case of Iran, uh, because, of course, there has been over the course of this, the last over the summer, you know, sort of talk about, um, you know, the Iranians getting frustrated with the Indians over over sort of the Chabahar, you know, development port, development of the Chabahar port and sort of looking to the Chinese as, as an alternative there. And of course, the Indian, you know, ministerial visits to Iran to sort of, you know, sap, you know bolster its, its position there. I mean, I guess for me, the, the way I see it is that the, you know, this is maybe an over, you know, there's, there's too, maybe too much being made of, of China in relation to Iran. Um, you know, yes, I mean, there's this sort of geopolitical rivalry that goes on between sort of, you know, sort of the Indian sponsorship of the Chabahar port and sort of the Chinese sponsorship of the Gwadar port in, in, in Pakistan just over the border. I mean, you know, some of these, I mean, just as much as we can see, you know, com, you know uh, competition between them, we can also see them as possibly complementary as well. Um, but in, in the case of, you know, sort of this, this, this report that came out earlier this summer about, you know, the Sino-Iranian relations was about to go to the next level, that China was about to invest, you know, up to 400 billion in in the next 25 years i mean a lot of this is somewhat overblown and i mean if anyone's interested i mean i would i'd urge you to sort of look at my colleague you know jacopo's uh, skeeter's piece in the responsible statecraft in which he basically takes looks at that agreement and says that actually a there's there's nothing really new here in the sense that you know this is actually uh, more detail on the 2016 comprehensive strategic partnership that was agreed between China and, and Iran. It just puts more flesh on the details, but B number two, there's not that, it doesn't really say anything about money about how, what, how much is actually going to be invested. So this 400 billion is something that's been, you know, it's, it's among, especially among those who are, who's, who are Scott and you know, study students of, of Iran and China more so than I, you know, question that because, if you, I mean, similar similar sort of claims were made around this time last year in a Petroleum Economist article 
Um, if you actually go and look at what China's invested you know, in Iran over the last 15 odd years, I mean, American Enterprise Institutes does a really good you know, tracker of Chinese investments around the world. And in 15 years, it's invested probably around or just under 30, 25 to 30 billion. So, you know, the idea that somehow we're going to suddenly see this escalation of 400 billion um, seems a bit, a bit extreme. So, I mean, I would not put too much weight on that, <laughs> on that, on that particular idea. And also, finally, the last thing I want to also point out is that actually, you know, and this is not just unique to Iran, but in many cases, the relationship between China and X Middle East state is one that is much more skewed towards the Chinese than it is towards the others, right? So that Iranians need the Chinese far more than the Chinese need the Iranians. Um, so, you know, I don't, so this is actually, so a lot of this actually came out of Iran and part of it was, you know, partly to try and sort of boost its own status to say, look, we are not an international pariah. We're handling, you know, the American maximum pressure sanctions against us because um, we've got friends, we're friends with China. But the Chinese have not said we're going to go and invest 400 billion. So. Thanks. I think, I think uh, that, that clarifies a lot of, you know, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, in, in a way, it was more of posturing in terms of, you know, trying to create uh, a, a posture, a perception in the, in the in the in the you know global media rather than just I mean obviously there are certain realities but it's not something new. There is one final last question. Uh, you know if I if I can ex extend a bit of your time. <laughs> uh, there, there was I mean I, I think part, partly you were you have uh, you have touched upon this about the uh, tension between Russia Iran on the one hand and China on the other, especially vis-a-vis -vis Syria. Uh, you know, and especially when, since you were also talking about the reconstruction project, perhaps if you can shed some light on that and then, you know, we can kind of... Absolutely. I see the question because it's asking me, you know, how does, how does China assess its competition with Iran and Russia, Russian firms while pursuing peace through development? And given that Russia and Iran are leveraging their supports to Assad, you know, for, for context. I mean, look, the, this is again, and this isn't, I mean, so China, again, I, I shall come back to the point that it's actually a lot, it's just as with Iran, the Syrians have been doing this, which is to sort of, you know, point out that we have friends, you know, we're not international pariahs, you know, we, we don't need the West, we don't need, you know, sort of aid from, from, from America or the, or the European Union or from Turkey, we, we can get it. And okay, yes, our, our allies, the Russians and Iranians are sort of struggling with sanctions and stuff. We can get funds from, from China. The Chinese have, you know, Chinese firms, uh, some Chinese firms have been looking at the potential for for investment in Syria, but it is also one that has you know not generated much in the last few years, and it's unlikely to do so until things become a lot more stable and secure. Ultimately, these are business people making business decisions, and they want to be absolutely sure that there is going to be stability and order, you know, before they put their money down. Um, now, I mean that. And, and even if the Chinese did do that, that actually creates tensions with the Russians and the Iranians who sort of sit there and think, well, you know, we've actually invested not just, you know, money, but we've invested, you know, men here as well. So, so there isn't this sense of, you know, there is this, interestingly enough, there is when, you know, on things like the JCPOA, you know, the Iranians, Chinese and, and Russians are all of a like mind. You know, they, they believe that the JCPOA should continue to operate. Um, they oppose the American you know, maximum pressure against it. And yet when it comes to Syria, you know, they're all, they've all got their own internal interests, their own self-interest. And 
that shouldn't surprise us. Um, you know, they will, you know, what often, I think this is one of the key points to make about all of this, that is that, you know, instead of looking at these, instead of taking this kind of sort of global or sort of, you know, bird's eye view and trying to sort of see everything through the prism of, you know, is this good for, you know, if this happens, is this good for this bunch of people and, and less good for this bunch of people um, and to look at it on its own, in its own terms. And so that actually makes for, you know, much more sort of, confu it, sometimes it make, make, looks pretty confusing. You know, is that what China does in Saudi Arabia or in Syria is completely at odds with what it does in Yemen or Iran. Um, but I think that is kind of the way we have to look at things, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, now, in like, as I said, I don't think there's much interest in sort of, you know, investing at the moment in, in Syria, at least in so any, great, any substantial amounts. But, you know, it, 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 is a, it is also a test because, you know, if they are serious about this idea of peace through development, you know, this is really, you know, the best, the best place to, to, to experiment and, and to, get, to give it a go. Because I think with the other conflicts like Yemen and, and Libya, we're not yet at, a, at, the, at the point where, you know, the, war, the wars are coming to an end. There's still a lot more to play out there. In Syria, we seem to be coming to an end. But the problem is, is that the Chinese don't really have anything to say on things to do with, you know, sort of transitional justice on what happens for, you know, the, you know, for, for the victims of, of the war, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, their, the return of refugees. There's not really any, com you know, conversation going on there. So. Thank you, uh, Dr. Burton. Uh, I think everyone would agree that this was a very wonderful exposition on China's growing and expanding, you know, in terms of not just a deepening engagement, but in terms of the vastness of its engagement also. Uh, and we really look forward to, uh, you know, get hold of your book and read it and also have you more with us on various you know, issues which you work on. And thank you also for your patience with all the questions and answering all the questions. Uh, may I now request uh, uh, Sir Professor Kumar Swami to, uh, you know, say the last final word.